Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jody Westby, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley. Today, we're going to explore privacy considerations in digital investigations. Companies have been under siege with ransomware attacks, and forensic investigators have been busier than ever. But this also means there are privacy risks when personal information has been exfiltrated by the malware or when the forensics team encounters it in its investigation. We are so pleased to have Sherry Davidoff with us today. Sherry is CEO and founder of LMG Security based in Missoula, Montana. I've known Sherry for about 15 years and we've worked together off and on over the years. She has a computer science and electrical engineering degree from MIT and is author of the book, Data Breaches, released in 2020. Sherry's been called a quote unquote security badass by the New York Times. She's conducted cybersecurity training for many distinguished organizations and is an instructor for Black Hat where she teaches her data breaches course. She also has a new book coming out very soon titled Ransomware and Cyber Extortion, which is timely to say the least. So Sherry, welcome. And let's start by learning a little about your new book. When's it coming out and what propelled you to write it? Well, thanks so much, Jody and Jerry. It's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. My new book should be out by the end of the year. And as you mentioned, ransomware and cyber extortion has really been hitting the headlines lately. But you and I both know, having been in the industry for 20 years, that it's not actually a new thing. I mean, even 20 years ago, we were seeing cyber extortion cases. There was a big one involving Bloomberg. So since 2016, we've seen a real ramp up in cyber extortion and ransomware. It's taken down hospitals. It's been causing, these days we're seeing leaking information. 77% of uh, ransomware cases now involve a threat to leak information. And there are things you can do to help prevent damage, to help mitigate that damage. So our team has really been handling ransomware cases frequently since about 2016, paying the ransoms, dealing with the ransom negotiations, helping organizations to to clean up. And we notice these trends where there's a few key things you can do to help prevent them. Um, and even if you can't prevent them, there's some things you can do to help avoid hitting the headlines or experiencing that major damage. And we haven't yet seen a modern comprehensive guide on how to deal with these cyber extortion cases. So that's our goal, to give people those tips they need to handle things right uh, and to help prevent uh, your stolen data from being published on the dark web to help uh, mitigate these PR problems. So we set out to create that cyber extortion manual. 
Well, it'll make a powerful contribution toward explaining ransomware, how it works, and most importantly, how to manage an attack. Your team has such great expertise in that area, so I'm looking forward to seeing it. Privacy compliance is always a big deal in forensic investigations. The company and the investigators want to know what legal compliance requirements may have been triggered. So tell us how that works in an investigation. Let's pretend you're called in and begin investigating. What kinds of information do you want to know from the client? And then what kinds of data do you come across in forensic investigations? Sure. Well, the start of a cyber extortion case is a lot like going to the doctor. The first thing we want to know is what are your symptoms? What are you experiencing? What's happening? And often, uh, because we've seen so many of these cases, we can tell that what you're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. So maybe you're seeing workstations that are locked up with ransomware. Well, the reality is that in a lot of those cases, uh, the criminals have been in your network for weeks or even months, stealing your data, getting information. And that's important for a few reasons. One, because you may need to investigate that in order to comply with data breach notification laws or other regulations. Second, because you want to stop it from happening, sometimes data is actively being exfiltrated right when you first discover it. And so you want to lock that down and prevent, you know, stop the bleeding, basically. Conduct triage, stop the bleeding, make sure you're eradicating the threat. We also need to know what kinds of information you have. And this is where we see people often underestimating the types of information that they have. So you might think, that you don't have a large number of social security numbers. But often we find that people have previous customers' information or maybe they were storing it for a reason that they didn't understand and have never deleted it. And you don't want to find out about that when that information is dumped on the dark web. So that's one of the first questions we ask is what kind of information do you have? And we'll want to probe that a little bit. Yeah, you know, in our cybersecurity assessments, it's almost a given every assessment, the three weakest areas will be data inventories, incident response, and business continuity disaster recovery. And what you're telling me just confirms that because when companies are learning from the investigator what data they have, that's not a good sign. Let me bring Jerry in. Jerry? Thanks, Johnny. Sherry, also let me join Jody in welcoming you to the podcast episode. It's already very interesting. You know, we've had several guests discuss the massive amounts of data that companies have collected, and maybe organizations really don't know what data they have. Is that your experience? And if it is, can you discuss how this hinders an investigation and can create privacy issues for the company? Yeah, Jerry, this is such a key point right now that people don't know the information they have. I was doing research for my data breaches book, I stumbled across a great quote from the 1980s where Dunn and Bradstreet was commenting on how information is the new oil. They were really excited about this. They had just started distilling data and creating data products. So they, they excitedly proclaimed information is the new oil. And one month later, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. And I think that really says a lot um, because it is true. Information is valuable. Information is powerful. And when it spills, it can wreak havoc. It can cause tons of problems. I like to think of data as hazardous material. And right now, companies um, typically don't know where their hazardous material is stored. It's like olden days where we have uh, hazardous materials stored in buckets and paint cans and closets and all kinds of places. 
Um, and when you start actually looking... Just don't, just don't throw a match in there, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. And even fairly mature companies that have um, information handling guidelines, for example, or they may have controls... Often they're putting the horse before the cart because they have controls about how to handle sensitive information, but they don't actually know where their sensitive information is or what they have. So be careful when you're handling the plutonium, but we don't actually know where the plutonium is and it might actually be uranium. So you guys know even better than I do about all the different regulations and how it matters uh, what type of information you have. Um, so I think what everybody needs to do right now is take a step back and do an inventory of your data. And this will dramatically improve your security. I mean, the quickest and cheapest way to improve your security is to know where your data is and to start deleting it. Often companies have three, four, or five, or 12 different copies of the same information. And the more copies you have, the more likely it is to leak out into the world. I mean, just think about sending a file. If you email someone a file, the email's on your computer, it's out there in the cloud in your email, it's on the recipient's computer. So right there, boom, you have three copies of that file. Whereas if you're keeping it on a central file share and you're, let's say, sharing a link to it, hopefully like password protected or something like that, then you're minimizing the number of copies. So simply by reducing the amount of data we have, we can reduce our risk. Very poignant point. And, uh, you know, you've noted that 77% of all ransomware cases involve data exfiltration. And this data often ends up in the dark web. What is the threat to individuals or third-party companies whose data may have been involved in a ransomware attack and exfiltrated? And what happens to that data on the dark web? Great question. The dark web has become very mature. We see all kinds of e-commerce sites where criminals buy and sell personal information. So you can shop for passwords. You can shop for bank account numbers, credit card numbers, medical records, and more. And that means that when there's a market for your personal information, there is incentive for people to steal it and to publish it. And um, what we're seeing more and more is uh, criminals engaging in double extortion, where they're locking up all your files and holding them hostage and trying to get you to pay a ransom. And then they're also threatening to publish it on the dark web. So they're kind of getting you twice. They're trying to leverage in two different ways. And one of the reasons for that is because more and more organizations do have good backups. And so they're able to restore their data without paying the fine uh, or without paying the ransom demand, but they still uh, are trying to do everything they can to prevent it from getting published on the dark web. These days, we're also seeing what they call triple extortion. And you may have heard this term out in the news recently. The headlines are saying triple extortion is a new trend where the criminals are not only trying to extort the victim, they're then also turning to the data subjects themselves. So let's say you have a hospital and patient records have been stolen. Um, there was a therapy clinic recently where this happened. They will not only try to extort that clinic, they also go to the patients and say, we're going to publish your information on the dark web unless this organization pays a fee or you pay a fee as well. So triple extortion is becoming a trend. Now, it's not actually new. Um, again, it is making the news. It is hitting the headlines. And once that happens, we start to see all these cool buzzwords. But we saw even uh, four or five years ago, the Dark Overlord is a good example of a criminal gang that was engaging in triple extortion. So they would hack into clinics and school districts they would threaten parents because they have contact information. So they text parents or they message patients. We also saw the Regal Ransomware Gang last year broke into the law firm to the stars in New York City. 
and ended up publishing some of Lady Gaga's information on the dark web. Often they'll try to extort money from those data subjects or from the victims. And then if you don't pay to have your information deleted, and we don't know if they really deleted it, um, but if you don't pay them, then they'll sell it to someone else or they'll auction it off. So for example, the Reval ransomware gang was peddling Donald Trump's information that was supposedly stolen from this law firm. They were asking $42 million and they came out and said, somebody bought it. Now we have no way of knowing for sure, but they did declare somebody purchased it. So they didn't actually publish that information. Well, let me ask you, this data that's on the dark web, first of all, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear from you, a skilled forensic investigator, about the dark web, because you shouldn't just go prowl around on the dark web if you're a novice trying to see what information about you may be there, because you really risk getting infected from doing that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, criminals will hack anyone that they can. And if you're buying, um, for example, hacking tools on the dark web, expect that they're, they may have malware in them as well. Although to be honest, we've had pretty good experiences on the dark web. We have a laboratory and we have interns that do explore the dark web fairly regularly. And many of these sites have vendor ratings um, and ways of getting feedback from customers. So we found nine times out of 10, the hackers actually do deliver what you pay for, which is a little a little funny when you think about it. But yes, uh, the dark web can be used for good or evil. Um, in fact, when I was in college, two of my college roommates were writing Tor, uh, which is the software that helps explore the dark web. Um, and they received funding both from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the Department of Defense in order to do that and help create the dark web. Um, because there are certainly reasons, legitimate reasons, why we might want to have anonymity on the internet. But at the same time, that enables the criminals to use that as well for their nefarious deeds. So like any tool, like guns, like cars, like everything, it can be used for good or for evil. But what about the data that's out there? I mean, if you find it, can you use it? Is it legal to go buy data off the dark web, dark web from these guys? Oh, that's right. What a great question. Um, well, I mean, I'd love to hear from you guys because you're the attorneys. Um, but I've often wondered this and been concerned about it because we have seen terabytes and terabytes, petabytes of information leaked on the dark web at this point, medical records, research, uh, intellectual property, you name it. And um, they did a study of legitimate data brokers, the FTC did several years ago, and they found that the top nine data brokers buy their information from other data brokers. So they, if they want your personal information for marketing purposes or other things, they buy it from other data brokers. And those other data brokers in turn buy it from other data brokers. And so I see this as a risk because it's entirely possible that information is getting stolen, it's leaked onto the dark web, and criminals are creating data products out of it. Here's a list of everybody who has diabetes. Here's a list of everybody who has mental health problems. And where does that information go? Eventually, it could easily get leaked into the legitimate data brokerage markets. And I'm not sure there's a way for us to tell. It's almost like data laundering. Like once information is stolen, how can you track where it came from? It's quite hard to do. It's like it's like unmarked bills. Data laundering. I love that. So should Congress consider this issue when it's contemplating national privacy legislation? Should they consider prohibiting the use of stolen or exfiltrated data? And should they require the person that you get data from to tell you its provenance? Would that help? I think that's a great idea. It's a very complex topic. I do think that 
understanding where your data comes from is a first step. And, you know, right now that's not, we don't even know who has our data. We don't have the right to understand that as individuals. So that in and of itself would be a first step. But the second step is yes understanding where does your information come from? Where is it being purchased from? Maybe we need something like the equivalent of food organic regulations, but for data. Um, you know, we, we want to know that it came from someplace that was ethical, ethical procurement of data. At the same time, it does make me wonder about global competition. So if you have other countries that are just getting these databases of medical records totally unredacted, they may be able to do more with that, more research um, than we can do with anonymized data. So we may want to start thinking about, okay, how do we regulate the use of information? It's out there. Information wants to be free, right? But what you do with it is what's most important. Well, in the ransomware attacks and even in plain hacking attacks, the company and the customers, of course, always want to know, did they access any personal data? Or did they access a specific data set that could expose sensitive information about other companies? How hard is it to determine this? What are some of the obstacles in determining whether personal data has been accessed or a certain data set has been accessed when you're doing an investigation? Well, it should be pretty easy. I mean, ideally, you would have all the information that can tell you, uh, show you the attacker's footprints. Where did they go? What databases did they access? Unfortunately, this is rarely the case in practice for several reasons. One, you need to make sure um, as an organization that you have turned on logging. And sometimes it's a fairly simple thing to do ahead of time. Just turn on um, the logs that will tell you who got into your network or um, how much information was transmitted from one computer to another. So that's the type of information that's possible to collect. But many organizations don't take the time before a data breach to do that. Uh, and that it's possible to rule out a data breach if you have comprehensive logs and you look through and you say, nope, you know, nobody actually accessed this database. But if you don't have records, um, you may not be able to conclusively determine if someone accessed it or not. Now, in a ransomware case, remember, you're dealing with a situation where uh, data may be destroyed by the attacker. So you might have servers and workstations that are completely locked up. So think about where do you store that information? Mm -hmm. But the number one way we see evidence getting lost is uh, destruction by IT staff themselves. So again, IT staff are usually under great pressure to get the environment up and going again as quickly as possible. They will format and reinstall. And with it, they've uh, also destroyed the evidence, not on purpose. It's almost like you have a crime scene and there's a dead body and people rush in and say, oh my gosh, we have to get back to business, toss this dead body outside, wash the floor, wash the walls, uh, take those, pick, pick all the bullets out of those bullet holes and throw them away. And then a week or two later, you think, oh, we need to do an investigation and the evidence is gone. So you have to train your first responders. That's actually something our team does a lot. Train your first responders so that they know how to preserve evidence while also recovering operations. And ideally, you probably want to pull in a professional team so that they can quickly get that evidence preserved and get you back up and running. Yeah. And it's not just turning on logging. It's making sure that you're retaining it long enough where you have it to look at over a period of time to see what happened, right? Oh, that is such a great point, Jody. Yeah, we had a case recently where um, they were retaining 90 days of logs and the IT staff started off doing their own investigation. So we weren't even pulled in until um, like 80 days, something like that. Um, and then they handed over the evidence. And um, after we had investigated a few days, we realized that they had not preserved 
the initial point of compromise, um, but we weren't able to go back because that was already four or five months back. So understand what your data retention times are. Um, because of that, they probably had to over notify. Um, we weren't able to rule out a breach uh, for certain accounts that may have been accessed before the time that the evidence started. Yeah. Carrie? You know, you're, you're really, I picture you coming in with virtual yellow tape protecting the crime scene. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it, you've raised some very fascinating and unique issues in this, uh, issues we haven't explored before in our podcast episodes. We've had a couple of guests discuss their views about how people should be able to control and sell their data. Do you have any thoughts on that? Should I be able to sell my own data and tell others they can't sell my data? And would companies even be able to live up to that since data is copied and spread everywhere? Well, I think if the criminals are making money off my data, I should be able to make money too, right? <laughs> I know we're just joking around before this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know there's that concept, and you guys are the lawyers, of habeas data um, where, where you own your information. We don't have that in the United States. I do think that there are, you know, you have to balance personal needs with business needs. Um, as a business owner myself, I know how hard it is to go in and delete things, for example. So I believe strongly in the right to be forgotten. If I don't want my information in a company's database, I want it to be removed. But I can also see for organizations that are taking regular backups, let's say um, someone requests that their personal information be completely expunged. Can you really go back into records from six, seven, eight years ago or more. And maybe these are offline backups and decompress them and find that one person's record and delete it. It can quickly become a huge administrative burden uh, that would have a chilling effect on business and our economy. So we have to balance those two needs and figure out what is reasonable and try to protect the, the interests of individuals while also enabling businesses to operate. Well, you know, you the right to be forgotten obviously does have those difficulties. But of course, you could agree not to use. So you would at least disable the data that you weren't able to get back to. Well, exactly. And I think that's coming right back to that really important point. Maybe it's becoming a theme of our conversation that we need to start regulating and thinking about how information is used. Expect that the information will be out there, whether it's distributed or sold or stolen. And think about how are we going to have oversight and transparency over how it's used and how can individuals and businesses have some control? You know, 27 states have cybersecurity requirements to protect personal data. So national privacy law is likely to have some cybersecurity requirements. In fact, uh, you know, I think it has to. Uh, as a cybersecurity expert, what measures do you think were the most important companies to take to protect personal data? Well, I'm going to give you four things, Jerry. Number one, track the sensitive information that you have. So know yourself, track your, your sensitive information as an organization. Number two, get rid of it. If you don't need sensitive information, reduce it. This is the quickest and cheapest way to improve your security and reduce your risk. Get rid of sensitive data that you don't need. Number three, use multi-factor authentication. 
criminals have gotten very good at stealing passwords and finding ways to break into accounts. And we see a huge number of data breaches happening because of that. Multi-factor authentication means that you're verifying someone's identity using more than one method. So maybe a password and an app on your phone. And that means that even when, not if, when the criminals steal your password, they can't instantaneously get into your accounts. So deploy multi-factor authentication wherever you can. And finally, conduct training. Make sure that everyone is aware of the latest threats and knows what to do. Cyber criminals are constantly evolving. So this can't be a simple annual training. It really needs to be top of mind for everyone, part of a culture of cybersecurity. And that might sound hard to create, but it's just a matter of making cybersecurity part of your routine, whether it's giving tips at a meeting or putting up posters if you have people coming into the office. We're having a monthly video on cybersecurity, just making it top of mind and part of your regular awareness routine. That was very, very good advice. You know, I know in our law firm, we're very careful about what people, you know, even leaving their doors open to see the physical things on their desk. But when we're promulgating those rules, simultaneously, we have to be saying, also, when you're on your computer, be very careful about how you act. And we do have regular training, but it is because the criminals are becoming more sophisticated, the training has to be more intense. Exactly. Yep. We just have to keep up with the criminals. Well, this has really been a fascinating conversation and we're out of time. I can't believe it. It's flown. That's always happens when we talk, Sherry. Thank you so much for taking time to do this with us and and to share with our listeners your expertise on so many interesting issues. And we look forward to having you back at an, on another occasion. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Sherry. And looking forward to reading your book. Thanks so much to both of you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, data and cyber governance alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.